And good morning, dear church. Glad to have you here. And uh, I, on days like this, I think of the old Puritan pastor who, on a terribly snowy, cold, bitterly cold day, he was he was well known for always being thankful about something. And uh, so it was a terrible wintry day there in England, and, and uh, the few that gathered together, they thought, well, what is the pastor going to be thankful for on a day like today? And he got up and he said, Lord, today we're thankful it's not always like this. <laughs> and so we can be thankful in that way, can't we? It's not always like this, indeed. Well, today we are talking about families, and if you are, uh, happen to be uh, visiting here today, two things. Number one, we have a guest reception right after this. I'd love to meet you in, in the room uh, on the north side here of the Commons and uh, just answer some questions. And so, welcome. Special, like, uh, you know, blessing to you uh, if this is, you know, new for you and you came today. Awesome. Secondly, um, we typically are preaching through books of the Bible. And we are in the midst of a series on Romans, but we are taking a little break in January for Family Month. And the whole month we're addressing matters related to family and applying the Bible to family. And so uh, next Sunday, we're going to be talking about Christian parenting. And I'm here to tell you, it's a message that even if you're not a parent, you're going to benefit from, okay? So, but if you are a parent, you will especially benefit from next week is parenting. Today we're talking about families, and uh, you know, you say the word family, and from one perspective, there is a kind of sort of sentimental family feel where we, we sort of, it harkens in our minds thoughts of, you know, being with family, playing a card game, sipping hot chocolate, you know, the, the chestnuts are roasting on an open fire. It just, it can feel so sort of warm and loving. And indeed, there are aspects of family that are that way. You know, people that are uh, looking out for you and that help and encourage and got your back. And families, when they're good and healthy, there are so many incredible blessings uh, to, a, to a family. And at the same time, what is the reality of family? All too often, it's not chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Uh, all too often, it is these relationships that are the most strained and, frankly, the most painful in all of our lives, particularly when they are dominated by selfishness and bitterness and, indeed, division and conflict, which is what we're talking about uh, today. I read recently a, a book on family, and in, in it the author said, you know, being a part of the family means you know where the bodies are buried. Or to say it this way, you know the skeletons in the closet. To be part of the family is you know the history and the drama. You know the things that are great and the things that are not great. You know the flashpoints, the, the history. And all families have historical closets that nobody wants to open. My family has that. Your family has that. It's just part of the reality. And here is the irony of that, is that there is one thing that if families were good at it, would lead to peace and harmony in every family. Like it really comes down to one thing. 
And you would think since that's the case that we would be talking about the one thing. We'd be reading books about the one thing. We'd be all working hard about the one thing because there's one thing that if families are good at it, there's peace in the home. We should be good at the one thing, don't you think? (laughs) Amen. And this message is intended to help us be good at this one thing and to help with it because marriages rise and fall on this one thing. Uh, Sibling relationships rise and fall on this one thing. May I say it this way? Sister relationships rise and fall on this one thing. In-law relationships rise and fall on this one thing. When division comes, as it inevitably does, how good are we at resolving conflict and moving on in love? That's the one thing. That's the only thing you got to be good at for that family to live together in peace. And so our message today in our family math series, we've done subtraction, we've done addition. Today we're doing division. Okay, the divided family. How do we keep our relationships harmonious, how do we protect them from falling into a kind of toxic relationship, and what does the Bible have to say about it? So I'd like to begin by, first of all, talking about why families divide. Why is there conflict in every single family? I mean, from one perspective, it's amazing that families stay together at all. Like, to be in a family means that you know enough bad about every other family member that if you knew that much bad about anybody else, you wouldn't be friends with them. (laughs) Uh, And yet, these are the people we choose to holiday with and sometimes vacation with and burn vacation days on is people that we know all of this about them. What do we have in common with these people? Really, it's just DNA, right? It really boils down to that. But even in the healthiest families, there are deep relational problems. Now, as a pastor, I could talk about your family, because I know a lot about families here. But it's safer to talk about my family. So how about if I do that, okay? Let's talk about the DeWitts. So if you don't know about my family, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a, a home my dad was like Sunday school teacher my whole life. You know, it just always teaching Sunday school, deacon in the church, We were a, you know, on a snowy day like this, the DeWitts were still at church. That's the family that we were. You know, we always sat third row right over here. That was the DeWitt section, little little pew that we kind of claimed as our own. And if you sat there, maybe one week we'd show grace, but the next week you're out. Like, this is our spot. And people just knew you don't sit there. That's That's where the DeWitts sit. So I have a very wonderful Christian heritage. All my siblings are Christians. My parents are Christians. My dad, longtime leader in the church. My sisters are, you know, leaders in various ways in their own uh, churches. My brother uh, was a missionary in South America for many years. Now he's a senior pastor in Nebraska. You know what I do. And so this is the DeWitt family. You would look at that from the outside and say, oh, I mean, with that much like Christian stuff, To be a part of the DeWitt family would be like heaven on earth, would it not? No, it would not, actually. The DeWitt family has conflict. 
I'll give you one example of this. It's not always like this, but this is one that stands, uh, comes, comes to my mind as I was preparing this. So many years ago, my brother was a missionary in South America, and you know we hadn't seen him, we hadn't seen the grandkids, we were missing them, we decided, hey, let's go on a trip, let's go down there and let's see them. And so at great expense, we fly to see them, and we had like a week of uh, being with them, so we were going to see the sights and hang out together. And um, where we were at, there were a number of, um, it was famous for its hot springs, And so one of the things we thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to go as a family uh, to one of these hot springs? It's not something you do all the time, you know, it's kind of unique, and so let's go do it. So we're like, yay, we're going to hot springs. That sounds great, doesn't it? Wrong. Why? Because there were various hot spring facilities to choose from, and they had varying amenities and varying price points with those amenities. And so there we are in the van trying to decide which hot spring to go to. Again, great, you know, people, Christian leaders and such. Easy, right? No, not easy. One person wanted to go this place. You know, the other person, oh, I want to go this place. Certain pastor in Indiana wanted to go to one place. And before long, in the van, it was getting hot. And I remember thinking to myself, I literally had the thought as I was sitting there, I was like, wait a second, my dad's a leader, my brother's a missionary, we're here seeing him on the mission field, for goodness sake, I'm a pastor, and really this is the way that it is? And that's what I'm saying to you today, that is the way that it is. It doesn't matter what family you're in, you might think to yourself, oh, you know, in the midst of conflict, you, you want to think that everywhere else it's, it's so much better, and you think, oh, the, the Johnsons never fight like this. The Smiths at church, they seem so loving and so, everything's so wonderful. I guarantee they never have the kind of drama that we're going through right now. Well, I'm here to tell you, I've pastored for a long time. The better they look on Sunday, the worse they are on Monday. Now, that's not true, but it's, didn't we all feel better just for a second in saying that? <laughs> Like, just for a few fleeting moments, we thought to ourselves, yes, those other families, they look so good, but they're worse than we are. Okay, so what I'm saying basically is we're all in the same family boat, okay? We're all in the same family boat. We all got drama. And that is why there is one thing that we got to be good at if we're ever going to have peace in our homes. One Thing. In a way, it's helpful to think simply, like, we just got to be good at one thing here. Now, last week we talked about marriage. And um, I, had a, I had a man before, first service, he caught me at the door and he just went and said, I can't tell you how much that was a blessing and was a help. And praise God for that, the justified marriage. And what I did there is I tied in our Roman series in talking about a biblical perspective on marriage. Because if justification says anything to us, especially Romans 3, is that we are all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so it doesn't matter who you marry, you are marrying a sinner. And justification, that miracle grace of God where he initiates by his grace and declares us righteous by virtue of what Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins, 
imputing his very righteousness to us and saying, I'm going to treat you as if you were as righteous as Jesus forever. And that's what we call eternal life. This wonderful promise of justification by faith, the grace of God, his sovereign initiative to save us. What a wonderful doctrine that is. And so we talked about what is a justified marriage? How does justification shape a Christian marriage? It basically forces the husband and wife to look at each other gospelly. And to understand, you're a sinner. And to look in the mirror and say, I'm a sinner. And I told you how helpful it is in marriage at times, quietly, out of the hearing of your spouse, to think to yourself, I'm a sinner married to a sinner. And that explains a lot of what's going on right now. Okay. Now what I'm going to talk about today, I could have entitled this The Justified Family, Because it's basically the same principle applied to family relationships. Because we could think to ourselves, you know, maybe there's that perfect family out there and I wish I was a part of it. But the Bible comes along and says, there is no righteous families, no, not one. Every family has problems. That doesn't mean that every family has the same degree of problems and the same intensity of problems. But all families have problems. And the degree to which they are able to do this one thing is the degree to which they are able to live together, to dwell together in peace. So justification, to say it this way, is for me, in the moments of my drama in family, is to me to look at myself and say, I am a sinner, and I am in a family of sinners. That's the gospel. And all God's people said, amen. So this explains where the conflict comes from. And I'd like to explore this a little bit more deeply from James 3. If I have a primary passage today, it's James 3. You can turn there, uh, James 3 and into chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, because I think it explains so much about human behavior and human uh, relationships. Here's what James writes. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace so james here is describing really two two kinds of wisdom or two ways of living and both of these two have two different outcomes so on the one respect you have wisdom that he describes as being earthly okay this is Wisdom devoid of God. Wisdom without God. This is man trying to explain reality without God. This is atheistic, indeed demonic approach to reality. And what James says is the outcome of living this way is selfishness, conflict, and every vile practice and disorder. Maybe that sounds like your family. (laughs) Say, you know what, that's kind of the the way things are right now in in my family. This explains why it is that way. 
I mean this as an encouragement. Notice there's two ways of doing this, one that leads to really bad things and one that leads to peace. And that means that your family, if it's experiencing disharmony, is operating according to principles that if changed or wisdom, if changed, can actually experience peace. Your family does not have to be the way that it is. Okay? Do not give up hope that things can change and things can improve by the grace and the help of God. Now, James goes on, explains why these conflicts happen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So James says here that the source of all of this drama that we have in our families, as much as we want to say, it's my father-in-law, it's my sister, it's my brother, it's my mother-in-law. No, you know where all this drama comes from? You know the problem in my family? It's me. Desires and passions that I have within me. The Greek word here is for desire is that, passions, okay? Strong passions, strong desires, which in and of itself is not wrong. God has strong desires. The problem with our strong desires is that they are selfish. They are prideful. And therefore, he says, you have something and you don't get it, and so you murder. You want something, you don't get it, you fight and you quarrel. These are the outcomes of these strong desires. I wonder if you think about the latest conflict you had in your family, maybe with a sibling. Would it not be somewhat summarized in the fact that you wanted something and she wanted something and it didn't go, it didn't go well? Okay? That's a fairly good summary for most of the conflict that we have. I, I think of uh, things that Jennifer and I are dealing with with our five-year-old and a three-year-old daughter in, in, a, in a parenting sense. Because we are working with them right now a proper response to the word no. It's a simple word, like two letters. Little bitty word, no. Massive problem, though, if you're five and you're three. Because they have strong desires within them. They want what they want. And so when we tell them no, the, the reaction right now is predictable, right? The, there's a sort of scrunching of the face, right? Flushing of the cheeks, tears from the eyes, and out comes like that. They have something, they're not getting it. How do they respond? That's how they respond. Does that sound like a family gathering for you? Just a whole bunch of people going, wah, 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 wah. Everybody wanting what they want and mad when they don't get it. Where does the conflict come from? It comes from within us. In fact, here he says it in a far more sinister way. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you don't get it and you fight and you quarrel. Is James saying literally you people are murdering each other? No. But every murder starts with me not getting what I want. I've had a few experiences here over the years with murder and attempted murder. I remember one family that came to our church shortly after an experience where the son-in-law and the daughter-in-law 
were firing a gun at their parents through a door to try to kill them. How do you pastoral counsel something like that? I remember another experience. A man in our area was murdered, and they didn't know who did it or how it had happened. I performed the ceremony, huge funeral, one of the biggest we've probably ever had here. And uh, the wife and the, and the children sat here, adult children sat here, right here in the front row, mournful and sad, and everybody was sad, only to find out in the weeks that follow, they had actually murdered him. Now, whatever happened there, I guarantee you it didn't start with murder. It started with, you want what you want, and you don't get it. And so the seeds of these violent actions towards each other begin with these desires within us. You desire and you do not have. So you may not be at the murder stage in your family conflicts, but the seeds of it are always the same. And so many families, because they're not good at the one thing, they sort of exist on this emotional simmer where all it takes is a little poof and then poof. And you're like, where did that come from? Right? <laughs> Wait, hot springs. Like, why? why are we so mad about hot springs? Well, oftentimes there's a simmer just waiting for something to be a catalyst. And, to, and, to, and, and all of a sudden here it, it explodes. I remember my mom, she used to can... Uh, vegetables growing up. We had a garden and we'd pick them and snap the beans and the this and the that's and she would, she would do it. And, and I remember that uh, canning thing. What's it? Pressure cooker. The pressure cooker sitting on that stove and it's like this. And I just, I always, I, it was always like the house is about to explode, right? If this something doesn't go quite right here, kaboom. And it's a picture, I think, of families. Like, if you listen carefully, is this in the background of your family, is there this, like, la, 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 rattling going on? Pressure. This explains most family reunions, which sound great in theory, until you realize that you have to do a seating chart to make sure that Uncle Fred doesn't sit by Aunt Mabel. Because we all know what happens when they get near each other And so I'm going to assume something here today. We all crave harmony in family relationships. No matter how mad you are with your sister or your mom or whoever, we all want harmony at home. How do we get there? And I'm saying today it comes back to this one thing that we have to be good at, that it rises and falls on this one thing. So let's talk about the one thing now. And I want to talk about it in, in these terms. The difference between peace faking and peacemaking. Okay, Peacemaking and Peacemaking, wonderful book by Ken Sandy on, uh, called The Peacemaker. He uses language like this, very, very helpful. Peacemaking and Peacemaking. I'm going to assume all of us are naturally good at peacemaking. Peacemaking comes to us, we don't want to take a class on peacemaking, but peacemaking requires intentionality and it requires a kind of aggressiveness in the hard work of peace. And this is why many families don't experience it, okay? Peacemaking is a culture within a family. What's your culture? 
You say, well, we lean more peace-faking. Do we lean more peace-making? And nobody does this perfectly. I am preaching this message to myself as evidence of that. But what I'm hoping is that I can encourage you that over time you can create a culture where the peacemaking becomes more natural and more expected and that the peacemaking can go away. What is peacemaking? Okay, peacemaking is when your family, no matter, you could be having the worst argument, like we're talking a knockdown, drag out argument. I mean, it's people are yelling at each other, profanities are being said, dishes are flying, you know, furniture's being turned over. All of that kind of can be going in that moment. But if the doorbell rings, all of a sudden we're all good, aren't we? Like, we don't, have, we don't have to have, hey, uh, family, we're going to have a little training here. Let's pretend we're having a big argument, and then we're going to push the doorbell, and let's get back to the peace faking. It just comes naturally to us. Like, we want to keep up appearances, don't we? We want people to think, we're all good. Everything's fine here. There's no conflict. We love each other wonderfully. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking today about peacemaking. And the degree to which we're good at this is the degree to which we will have peace in our homes. What is biblical peacemaking? Here's the definition. It is the appropriating of vertical reconciliation received from God to horizontal reconciliation with others. It is the appropriating of the gospel, you can say it that way, that I have received from God, me appropriating that grace in relationships horizontally, especially those closest to me, like my family. And so we think about how did God reconcile with us? Was God passive aggressive with us? Did God say, oh, Adam and Eve, so that's the way you're going to be. I think I'll be withdrawing my love, and I'm just going to sort of sit back here in eternity, and you're going to hell. That would be passive-aggressive divine activity. No, it was actually the opposite of that. What did God do? God took the initiative. God addressed the problem. How did he do it? By sending his son Jesus into the world to, to not just give us good advice and help you know, us uh, be, be a better society. No, he came and he died for sin. Because sin was the problem. He came and he addressed the root issue with his death on the cross. That's peacemaking. And that kind of peacemaking is what results in actual peace. Here's Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So the vertical required God to do something about it. It wasn't us to God. Okay? It was God to us. You with me? Peacemaking is like that. Where I am not passive-aggressive and sort of withdraw relationship, that is the worst thing to do. It is the opposite of what God did. God was not passive-aggressive. He was peace-aggressive. I said that accidentally first service, and I thought, that's so good. Right? He was not passive-aggressive. He was peace-aggressive. And this is how we are to be as well. Here's how Jesus said it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the families, you could say it this way, blessed are the families made up of peacemakers, for they shall experience family blessing. 
Here's my, my, my encouragement. Peacemaking is harder, but it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Passive-aggressive is easier, but it's short-term gain for long-term pain. And some of you are in family relationships. It has been so long since you had a cordial conversation with some particular family member. Or if you do, you sort of just sort of have to do the fake it thing because I got to do this. But in terms of emotional warmth, it's just not there. And I would have to think you long for it, you pray about it, maybe you blame the other person, but you wish it was different. How is it ever going to be different? It's going to be different by taking initiative. One of the things that I'm thankful for in my own family heritage is my dad was not passive, okay? My dad was the leader in the home. And every once in a while, my dad would take the initiative and he would say, okay, after dinner today, we're having a family powwow. And we always, as a family, you know, as kids, we were like, uh-oh, you know, we, and we're going to meet in the, in the family room, and we'd all, you know, file into the family room like, we are in so much trouble. This, whatever we've done, it's requiring a summit of the family for this to be addressed. And over the years, my dad would have family powwows when he identified something that was happening in the home that he wanted to change, uh, he wanted to do a course correction. I remember, like, for example... You know, a season where us as kids, four kids, we were not being helpful to my mom. We were treating like her like we were entitled to her, you know, uh, care. And so we're having a family powwow. We file in, and my dad just said, listen, what your mom does here is a blessing. It is not going to be taken for granted, and I want to see more helpfulness from you kids with mom. Okay, daddy. You know, we're all, all right, don't you love mommy? We love her so much. Don't you want to help her? Yes! What is that? That's caring enough about your family to lead. And in particular, men, if I could on this point, challenge you. You are the shaper of culture in your home. And too many of our men are passive when they should be aggressive. And by aggressive, I don't mean domineering. I just mean taking initiative. Your family is worth taking initiative and addressing whatever is causing the disharmony. Have a family power. Maybe even in light of this, today, tonight, you could say, well, you know, let's give this a try. Let's have a family powwow. How are things going in our family? What are a couple practical things that we could do to improve it? And I've got one suggestion to get us going. And just shape the culture of your home. This is peace Making works on lots of different levels. I would encourage you to do it. So how do we do this? And so the rest of the message today is just talking about how we peacemake with fellow sinners. Here is the first step. Number one, the Bible urges us to bear with one another. To bear with one another. Here's Colossians chapter 3. Bearing with one another And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul makes it ethical there. Wait, you say that you've been forgiven by God? You you must forgive. Like, you don't have a choice. You don't forgive. Have you actually received the grace of God? So we bear with one another. What do we bear with in families? We bear with 
the daily annoyances that personality quirks and preferences and ways of doing things that every family member has their own little idiosyncrasies that over time become so incredibly annoying that with God's help we simply bear with it, okay? We're not calling a summit over it, you know. We're not going to pastoral counseling over it. We're not posting on Facebook our complaints about the family members, personality, idiosyncrasies. We're just bearing with it. And probably 99% of the things that could create problems in a family should just be loved anyway, and we just hang in there with each other and we bear with it. You might say, well, give me a Bible verse for that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you really want your family to have summits over your idiosyncrasies? Or is it just the other family members' idiosyncrasies that you think need to be dealt with? And all of a sudden you realize the shoe's on the other foot. Wait a second, I need my family to think that my little quirky things are sort of okay and sort of fun because it's part of who, how God made me. But your things, these are big problems. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we want them to be gracious towards us. And here's the thing. Every single person that you could ever be in a family with has things about them that it, over time would annoy you to death. Everybody has them. Unless we're talking about the pastoral staff here. No. We all have them. And Jennifer said, amen. Okay. And bearing in love is good. Especially when people bear with us. Okay. So sometimes in, when you have conflict or those little sort of dust-ups, it's good to just agree to disagree. It's okay. I don't have to win the every argument. I don't have to change you into the person I think you need to be. It's a broken world. We're all sinners. Let's just go on for Jesus. It's really great for unity in the church, by the way, as well. Okay? So that's the first one. You got it? Bear with it. Just bear with it. Stage two. Now we're escalating here, is cover it. Cover it. Here's what 1 Peter 4, 8 says. Above all, okay, above all, Peter writes, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice, Peter here, we're not talking about annoyances, we're on the level of actual sin. And Peter here doesn't say, if you identify any sin in another person, then you'd better, you know, it's, it's time for the summit. It's time for the confrontation. No, there are things that are on the level relationally that we see in the other person that are things that we need to allow love to cover. Okay, we call, we've talked here about it like stretchy love, like a rubber band that stretches over those things like God has stretched over my junk. Okay? Not everything rises to the level of confrontation. And you might be like, well, you know, how do I know if I confront it or if I simply uh, cover it? Well, here's how. If you, over time, cannot look at that person without thinking about the offense, you probably need to confront it. If this thing is rising to a level that you cannot, you know, enjoy an evening with this person, you, you, you can't sit next to them, it needs to be talked about. 
But there are tons of things that don't rise to that level. In fact, if you are constantly pointing out these level of things in other people's life, you are actually coming across as petty, right? What does Jesus urge us to do? Here's what he says. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So if you're here and you're like, you're, you know, hey, I, I am on the lookout for sin everywhere I see it, and I'm going to confront it no matter where I see it, Jesus urges us to take the radar discs and point them on ourselves. Be a full-time sin inspector of me. And now, maybe from that perspective, I can see the speck in my family member's eye. Friends, God is gracious towards our sin. Aren't you glad that, you know, it's not like every time we sin in the course of a day, God's just like, you know, okay, you are vaporized right now. He bears with our immaturity. He bears with our lack of sanctification. He desires us to grow. This is not excusing sin. But in family relationships, there are things that we can cover in love. Okay, so bear with it. Cover it. Here's the third escalation is to confront it. And this is, I think, the hard work of active peacemaking. Because our instincts are to be passive-aggressive. And what passive-aggressive does is, it does the opposite of peacemaking. It, rather than engaging with a person, it withdraws emotionally from the person as a kind of punishment, okay? I am the judge, and God is not capable of making this wrong right, so therefore I am going to be judge and jury and I'm going to put you in relational jail. And when I deem it appropriate to let you out, I will engage with you emotionally again. This is not biblical. It is itself selfish. And it's the opposite of what Jesus commends to us in Matthew 18. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Okay? Now, this is a passage in Matthew 18, unfortunately, in the church, is known as the church discipline passage, when in reality, it's a guide to making peace with our brothers and sisters with sin that we see in one another. And done rightly, 99% of that kind of stuff should be dealt with on this level, where we engage with the other person. We go in a peacemaking attitude and action. This is, we don't go holier than thou. We aren't self-righteous about it. We go to reconcile with them. And this requires winsomeness. It requires wisdom. But please do not let that keep you from doing it. Because that stinger of that sin and offense has to be taken out. You know, like the, the uh, Aesop's fable of the lion who had the, the sliver. And, you know, just looking for the Aesop's fable, I don't even know comes to my mind as I'm talking here, you know, somebody to take that sliver out of my paw. It has to be taken out for healing to come. Now, if this is a relational conflict, friends, we have to acknowledge that only rarely does that person own 100%. Like, they are entirely the problem, and I had no contribution to this whatsoever, Okay? Most often, there's a little shared responsibility. And maybe it's just 
Like, you offended 1%, they're the 99. I would encourage you, when you go to them, own the 1%. Own that one thing and say, you know what, I was wrong in that and I want to ask you to forgive me. But in this, I also, I'm struggling because of 99%. And when we do that, the other person doesn't hear us as coming in with a club, we're owning our own failure and it can open their heart to owning their failure as well. Now, tone and timing are hugely helpful. Okay, I know this is your wedding day, but can we talk about the swirly you gave me in third grade? Like, that's bothered me for so long. That's an extreme example just to show you that the goal is to win them back, right? You want relational warmth with the family member. And how we approach it is important. I would encourage you to pray about it, okay? Pray, never underestimate prayer in reconciliation. Okay, so bear with it, can't bear with it. Cover it with love, can't cover it with love. Confront it. There's one more thing that you have to be really good at. It's the final stage. It's this. Choosing not to remember it. Choosing not to remember it. Some people call this forgiveness. And I wish that there wasn't this view of forgiveness that said, for real forgiveness is forgiving and forgetting. Because God is the ultimate forgiver, and in a sense, he never forgets anything. He is the all-knowing God. Like, if, if you right now could say to God, God, did you know that David and Bathsheba, they had this sin thing? It's not like God's in heaven going, what are you talking about? Right? It's in the Bible. Okay? God knows that David and Bathsheba had this very famous sin. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when I, by the grace of God, choose to not hold this against the person anymore. I may not forget it. Some things that happen, you may never forget. But that doesn't mean that I, can hold, that I have to hold it as an offense in my heart against the person. And the grace of Christianity and the gospel is that it enables me with the same grace that God has bestowed to me with all of my junk to look at the junk, this much smaller junk of my brother, sister, mother, father, and to apply grace and to forgive and to say, you know what, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. In fact, biblical forgiveness is saying three things. Number one, I will not hold this against you anymore. Number two, I will not hold it against you to others anymore. I mean, you understand that? If I say to you, I forgive you, and then go have lunch with somebody and say, can you believe what they did to me? That would be hypocritical, right? That's not forgiveness. I'm not going to hold it against him to other people. And thirdly, I will not hold it against you in my heart anymore. To get this, I think we have to frame it in terms of forgiveness. And here's a very practical thing, families. Parents, teach your kids this. Model it in your own relationships. Too often, I think, we approach this with the minimal statement of, I'm sorry. Say you're sorry, right? Parents say that, and the kid goes, I'm sorry, and then they go, and off they go, right? Is that forgiveness? No, it's not forgiveness. Being sorry is not biblical forgiveness. And to say it in those terms is so helpful. To say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? In fact, those might be the most important words 
for harmony in our homes. So to that end, I'd like us to practice it together. Could we do that? Okay. Some of you right now, you might have to like, it's got lockjaw on this point. You just can't quite, you know, you're, uh, you're like Fonzie. Now I dated myself who could never say I'm sorry. But uh, let's do it together. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Let's practice it. Okay. One, two, three. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Because now when I say that, I have framed it for the other person where they're either going to forgive or not. And if they forgive, they're agreeing to those three things. It's a way that the stinger of offense can actually be removed. And now healing can happen. Because as hard as it is for us to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? In forgiveness, it's not the person seeking forgiveness who has the hard part. It is the person who is granting the forgiveness that has the hard part. Because they have been sinned against. And they are absorbing that wrong and not retaliating, not requiring recompense for it. They are simply applying grace to it so that you can go on in love. But I would encourage you to say those words. Teach your kids to say those words. And then when you say, yes, I forgive you, to understand what that means. Does that mean that we forget? No. But I do think that we can choose not to remember it anymore. Like God chooses not to remember it and hold it against us anymore. And I think over time, this is maybe how time heals, is that once the offense is forgiven... Now, maybe the next time I see him, I, okay, I still think about it. And then the next time I see him, it's like the second thing I think about when I see them. And then a month later, it's the, the 25th thing I think about when I see them. But over time, this thing no longer has to define the relationship, especially those big things, right? The little things are easier, but the big things are very, very difficult. So hear me today. This works only if you choose to make it work. And much like last week where I said, you know, you can blow off what I'm saying if you want and say I can't wait to get home and all of that, but you're going back to your marriage. In a similar way, you're going back to your home. Most of us are going back to a family. And the, the culture of that family and the peace in that family is a huge determiner of our happiness on a daily basis. And so the things that we're talking about today, you can blow off if you want to, but your happiness will largely depend on how good you and your family are at this one thing. If I could compare it to the difference between potholes in the Grand Canyon. You know, here we are. It's winter. Did you notice it's winter outside? It was wintertime. And so it's snowy today, and it's going to be bitterly cold. I hear there's a little bit of a warm-up coming up, uh, here later in the week. And so what happens when it warms up? Potholes develop. So... What's the difference between a pothole and the Grand Canyon? In Northwest Indiana, not much. <laughs> but a pothole is something that you drive over and through. A canyon is something you drive into and you never get out. And that relationship that as I talk today, you're thinking about, you might view as a canyon. Maybe it's been so long, you're like, it's, it can only be a canyon. I want to urge you that your family and that relationship is worth every effort in peacemaking. What could God do? What would God have you to do if you were to initiate in a peacemaking process with them? 
Yes, with a bar of expectation, realizing I'm a sinner, her, uh, he's a sinner, she's a sinner. But allowing the lens of grace and peace to shape that. Because that's the lens that God has promised to look at me at through forever. And that's the gospel. That's the justified family. That is family math and what we do with division.